Welcome to Essential Coaching Conversations with Kyle and Asim. The real, relevant, necessary conversations to help you navigate coaching, teaching, learning, and life. Episode 22, we are back in action. And Kyle, we have, we have finally hit a little bit of winter break, and we might be able to record some of these episodes in quick succession, which I'm really excited about because we have a lot of thoughts that flow day to day. Um, you know, maybe we'll one day we'll publish some of those uh, those long text threads that we have and just make those into something um, because there's some great thoughts that we share back and forth each day, and we're excited to bring those to you over the next several months uh, here on Essential Coaching Conversations. Um, but you know. Oh, as always, just want to express gratitude for those who are listening, whether that's in the U.S., Canada, any of the number of countries that we've hit. Um, hopefully, we continue to bring you value, and we're adding value to your experience as a coach, as a teacher, as an educator, as whatever it is you do. Um, we're just excited that anybody chooses to put in their their headphones and listen to us. Um, and you know, I'll, I'll throw it to Kyle here for the Chuck's Challenge as we wrap up December. Um, in the next couple of weeks, just as a reminder for that. Yeah, thanks again for everybody joining us uh, again, whether this is the day after or even months down the road. So if you're you're newer or an old listener, we really appreciate you. And um, as far as you know, the entire podcast goes, but for the month of December, if you're catching this in time, um, we do appreciate those that are participating and sharing in the the Chuck's Challenge Chuck, uh, hashtag. Chucks for MDC and appreciate everybody around the country and around the world who are, are taking part and, um, you know, wearing a pair of Chucks to, to coach a game in, teach a class in, uh, a practice around the office, whatever the case may be for you in your particular situation and context. We really appreciate you. It's um, fourth annual and, and continuing to grow. And, and I think that the, the, the point and the impact there is, has been really, really great. And um, you, you've all been very supportive and, and very kind to, um, to take part and to share and to continue to to spread the message. So we really appreciate that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and just, again, send those pictures. You can DM them to Kyle. Uh, send them to our email address, admin at essential-coaching.net. Um, and again, if you don't have a pair of chucks, like that sort of is what it is. Can't help that. Um, but anything you can do to raise awareness about the impact of drunk driving and you know, be able to save a life. I mean, that's, that's huge. That's the exponential generational change we're looking for. It doesn't just, doesn't, doesn't just have to be uh, on the court or in the classroom or on the field. Um, so as you can see from the title of today's episode, we're going right back into uh, talking about practice. All right. And this is part two of what could be multiple more parts, maybe not in quick succession, but Certainly, there's plenty to talk about when it comes to practice. And if you didn't listen to the last episode, we'll link it in the show notes, um, talking about practice part one, and some of just our thoughts and musings about what the point of practice is. Is it learner-centered? Are we doing the things that get our players to actually be better? Or are we just putting together what's been described as worksheet practice, where we're just pulling things together throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks and then not really assessing whether it's stuck or not. 
Um, you know, for me, just, just on a personal note, as a practice planner, as somebody who prides themselves on being good at this um, and still continuing to want to learn how to be better at it, um, I think we do our athletes a great disservice and we waste their 11% of their waking hours a lot. And that's not, I mean, that's not casting aspersions on anybody. That's literally like we as a coaching community in all sports simply just have to become better at this um, because I think our players deserve it. And so what we'll actually do is I will link a blog that I wrote called They Deserve It um, in the show notes as well that sort of sheds some light on the practice atmosphere or the small group workout atmosphere that could exist and that may should exist because our players do deserve it. Uh, one thing you'll notice about Kyle and I is that we are very player friendly coaches. Like we are very, I, I mean, I would say like players enjoy playing for us and with us uh, because we believe that they deserve the best of us every single day. Um, and so with that being said, Kyle, I want to jump in and kind of where we left off last time, which is this idea that, you know, obviously like practice must meet the needs of the learner. We could think about recruiting in practice, but I want to throw it to you. Um, and we can obviously have a discussion about this as we always do, but I want to talk first about managing the cognitive load with things like scout in practice. So things that we are not doing every day, but it's somebody else's every day. Um, cause I think as you get into the season and this is not sports specific, I mean, I think football like goes ham on scout, but their context is super different than a chaotic game like basketball, because there is a break between every play they're coming out in formations. There's like a particular cadence to the, the game of football. And I feel like, especially in the U S with the, the influence that football coaches had historically on you know, athletic departments as a whole, but particularly in high schools and in colleges, like kind of the football coach got thrown into coaching basketball or football had already been established. It was like the thing to do. And so a lot of coach education came from football coaches because they were also becoming ADs. And I don't think this is something we really think about in the U.S. now because of, of the proliferation of basketball and like how good basketball coaches can be um, and how like cross kind of cross sport learning happens but I think for a lot of basketball coaches in particular scout is something that they sort of hang their hat on it's like yes I feel prepared for the game I'm preparing my kids for the game we have these elaborate scouting reports and we take that to the floor and the flow of practice seems to center around what the other team does but the messaging is we're gonna do us and so I'm curious about your thoughts on sort of the cognitive load in practice that coaches put on athletes when they're doing any amount of scout on the other team, but particularly when practice centers around that and how it's no longer, or maybe it is, I could be wrong, how it's no longer player or learner centered uh, when we get into those types of practices. Yeah, I think you, you raise a couple of great questions and points in not just the cognitive load piece, but also the misalignment of the messaging that our, our players are taking in when we say like, hey, let's just do us, you know, because it's always like, don't forget about these 10 things. And oh, by the way, don't forget about this 11th one. And then in the 11th hour, it's oh, don't forget about this 12th thing that might or may or may not happen. And so we're just continually 
you know, compiling, you know, compounding these, these, these little nuggets of information that again, I, I think at the end of the day, if most coaches were honest with themselves, it, it really is more for them to feel prepared. Um, Cause a lot of times when we talk to coaches, you know, it's like, okay, well, let's, let's talk about your, your scout that you give them in practice. It's like, well, you know, we have X amount of information, but most of that's not for the players. Most of it's just for me. Like we don't give all that to our players. And so they feel like, okay, they're reducing some of that cognitive load um, on their players. And it's just like, okay, well, I need to make sure I feel prepared for any upteenth, you know, thing that might potentially arise in the middle of a game or at the end of a game, right. When it quote unquote matters more. Um, but there's a conversation to be had there that that offensive rebound in the first 30 seconds is just as important as the offensive rebound in the last 30 seconds. Um, and so when we, when we tell our players, Hey, let's just do us, let's be about us. Let's focus on what we do. You know, a do we know what we do? You know, is there is there a, a a defined, aligned process of what we are supposed to be about? But then, even if there is, if we're constantly hitting them with what the opponents are going to be doing, I think the 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 problem or the issue that our players have is they have to sift through that information and prioritize that on their own, and try to say like, okay, well, I know this is really important for us, but they said this is really important about them. Well, if I have to choose between one of those two to focus on, which do I, you know, which do I process more? Which what which do I process first? Um, and then you mentioned flow in practice and tying this into the engagement and motivation part of of performance, you know, what's clo most closely tied to performance. And a lot of times I think practices can have these really great flows to them. Let's say you're into the idea of like mental transition games, you know, we're we're constantly competing. There's a lot of, you know, two on ones and three on twos and small sided games. And there's a, there's a, this really great flow to practice. And then when it comes time to scout that, that is likely the choppiest part of your practice. That's the most starting and stopping. It's the most, we'll hold up or, Hey, run that again. Let's run that back. Uh, no, do it again. That's wrong. Let's try it this way. Okay. Do that again, but this time do that. Okay. But this time do this. All right. Let's swap it up. Okay. No, that wasn't right. And so it's a lot of like, you know, if you if you envision kind of like water rolling down a hill, which I think really great basketball is, it's it's like there's just a number of, you know, these little mini or large dams that keep that water from being able to flow down the hill. And sometimes the water never gets to the end of the hill um, because it's just simply not allowed. And then we are faced with our biggest constraint and our most precious resource, and that's time. And so there's time on the clock. You know, there's 10 minutes left in this segment, but we've, we've got to get that one extra rep in, or we got to get that one extra nugget in, or this one extra side out of bounds set, or this one extra wrinkle again, that, that may or may not happen, you know, and we like to think we know um, what's about to take place, but at the end of the day, we don't really know, like, yes, players have tendencies, coaches have tendencies, teams have tendencies. The, the more data you can collect on a coach that's been there for 20 years or the longer you get into your season, the more information you can compile and the more likely that you are probably to guess correctly. But at the end of the day, again, these, these kids, these players, these coaches are not robots. They're, they're human beings. They make mistakes. So even if a play is supposed to happen a certain way and we're expecting the opponents to do something a certain way, it doesn't mean that that's going to be the case. And so if we tell our kids, hey, if, if X happens, do Y, and they do that, but then it doesn't work out because the other team screwed something up, but then we get mad at our players. But at the end of the day, they were just doing what we were telling them to do. Um, and the more we get into that,
vicious cycle of rote memorization that we talked about in the last episode, the less likely our players are to be able to think um, and process for themselves. And I think that's ultimately what we want to get to is, you know, most conference tournaments, most playoff games, they come down to a, a, a moment or two where a player has to make a play. And, 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 and you'll hear these same coaches who spend all this time on scout. They'll say, you know, got to have good players, you know, good players make plays, players make plays. And it just seems like in that 11% that you're talking about returning on our investment in a, in a more high yield way, if we focused our practice time more on what we want to do and how we're going to handle twists and turns in the course of a game and focusing on us, then that would lead uh, to, a, to a higher yield regardless of what might happen. And it doesn't guarantee any, any success, right? Like there's no guarantee that what we do is going to work, but I would feel much better about myself um, after the game knowing that I had put my players in a position to make the play and not rely on Coach K to bail them out. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, it, it's funny because, like, the, the question started, right, with cognitive load and what players are going to have to think about. And I think one of the, the old coaching adages is, you know, don't think, just do. Or, you know, what was something about, like, when you think you have slow feet if you, or if you have a slow mind, you have slow feet, something like that. Yet we just continually tell on ourselves by adding more and more and more and more. And so those things that we feel like are nuggets of information for our players, those things become overloaded pieces of information for our players. And players are continually having to make decisions about how they're going to stay on the floor. Do I focus on what they do or do I focus on what I need to do? And I was having this conversation with a good friend of the pod, Ed Silva, uh, from the University of New England. He's the men's head basketball coach there. And we were talking not necessarily about this, but more about like sort of player and student athlete mental health. And one of the things that I had sort of mentioned to him was like, players are already coming in at an 11. Like all the time, right? Players especially young people today, like they are constantly at an 11. And so our job is to help them cut the fluff. Our job is to help them sort of like parse through the information that they're getting, but also to de-escalate that 11 to like a seven so that they can play freely and they can play at a, at a, at a, at a level where they're calm and they're collected and they're composed. And so then when you talk about like players making plays, isn't that what that is? The players that have sort of de-escalated their own performance and said like, all right, I don't need to be at an 11 right now. I need to be at like a six. And I need to just be chilled out and just go play basketball. And so when we add more and more and more of these things, yeah, it does disrupt the flow of practice, but it also heightens that 11 to like a 12. Because it's constantly, oh man, we stopped again. Oh, all right, here we go again. Right. And I'm like, I'm not going to be perfect at running this other team set because they do this every day. I don't do this every day. I want to be good at what happens the most. Right. For me as a coach, like I want to be good at what happens the most. And so if I'm looking at like, all right, maybe they run this one set the majority of the time or they have this one offense the majority of the time. Yeah, we're going to go through that, but we're going to throw that into something we do every day so that there's a context to it 
and we've just changed some of the constraint. And the constraint could just be the action that's being guarded, right? I think it's also interesting when we think about like that flow of practice and the time and collapsing timeframes that we're more than happy to build in 20, 30, 40 minutes of that two hour practice to go over what the other team does. And we sacrifice the things we need to get better at in an effort to make sure they can't do what they want to do. And so I think that that's a concept, number one, that's been stolen from football coaches that we can sort of revisit. But then number two is like, you know, you and I have been around NBA teams before. Like we've been to practices, we've been to, you know, shoot around, we've been to pregame, we've been to NBA games, WNBA games. I think that there is a significant, significant difference between the professional level of sport and the majority of the context that our audience and then the, the two of us exist in, which is high school and collegiate sport. I think the players that are professionals are so good that, yes, scout matters a lot, a lot, especially in the terms of actions that they're using, in terms of counters to the actions that they're using. It is so set play oriented and so personnel oriented at the professional level. But at our levels, so whether that's college, whether that's high school, whatever it is, you're not dealing with the top of the top of the top in the world in what you're doing. Yet we try to emulate in practice, guarding particular sets and guarding particular actions and this, that, and the other. It's like, they're not scoring on that stuff. Their players are making those plays because they're simply just better at doing what they do. So we don't need to know 19 different things that are happening in a game we need to be able to stop the other team's players. And how do we do that? Well, we have to have better habits than they do. So our character matters more than theirs. Because here's the thing. You could run any number of sets in a game. Coaches will sit there and prepare for them. They'll feel really good about it. All of a sudden, you spent 40 minutes of your practice going through however many sets the other team runs. And at the end of the day, that other team, if they have better players, they're probably just going to beat you. You might make it close, but if they have better players than you because they've spent more time on player development, if they've reduced some of that cognitive load and their players can go play freely and, and play together, it doesn't matter what they run. They're probably going to beat you because you spent all that time worrying about what they're going to do. And it's sort of like... Um, you know, when little kids are like worried about a monster in the closet, we know there's no monster in the closet, but they're perpetually worried about it. And they're asking you to check over and over and over and over again. The other team's stuff is the monster in the closet, especially at the high school and the college levels. Go back to part one and think about the answer to the question, like what is practice for? Practices for learning and developing the habits that you need your team to have so they can withstand any type of chaos, not just the prescribed chaos that we're going to put them into preparing for the other team. Um, and so I would caution coaches like use your practice time to develop your players, not develop what the other team's plays are going to be. So your players sit there and now they have to remember yours and theirs. Yeah, there's a, a obviously a ton to 
kind of dive into that. But as you were talking about that, it brought me back to one of our, our four priorities, and that's prioritizing speed. And again, like in speed doesn't always mean fast. We've talked about this quite a bit. Like it can be actual physical speed of running, you know, sprinting down the floor, that kind of stuff. But when I think of speed, it, typically I, I, my mind gravitates towards processing speed and the speed at which we can make decisions. And so the simpler that we make things, or as our good friend, Adrian Mills would say, you know, simple, uh, what does he say? Uh, uh, simple executes at speed. Simple executes at speed. Yeah. Sorry. And so the, the, the more we can parse that down for them and remove a lot of the options and variables, then the faster they can process things in their mind and therefore make quicker and hopefully not just quicker decisions, but more accurate decisions. And so one of the things that you hear a lot, like from really great players, you always hear like their coach talk about in an interview or, you know, the radio and the, the TV talent when they're breaking down a game, they'll say, you know, the game just really slows down for this player. And what they really mean by saying that the game slows down for a player is that their processing speed is extremely high. They can process and see things so quickly compared to everybody else that the game seems to slow down and they're getting to they're getting to play on rookie mode while everybody else is playing on all Madden because they can process the game and see it so much faster. And so while they're playing slow, in a lot of ways, they're actually playing extremely, they're playing at a faster pace than everybody else. And so they're at that six or seven, like you're talking about, while everybody else is frenetically trying to figure something out and just guessing wrong at a, at a 10 or 11 or a 12, they're calm, cool, and comfortable at their six or seven. And they're able to not just handle things in the moment, but when mistakes are made, I think they're able to figure out why they're made. And then they're, they're more apt to correct those and make sure that that same mistake doesn't happen two or three, you know, or four times in a row. Whereas if you're out there again, kind of running around with your head cut off, you're just guessing and kind of throwing darts and hoping that, that you hit something um, that doesn't, like you said, doesn't get you taken off the floor. And that's ultimately what our kids want. They want to know what they need to do to be able to play. And when I get on the floor, what's going to keep me on the floor. And so you, you want, your players to go out and make plays for you, but you got to think, are my players out there playing extremely cautious because they don't want to make a mistake because they don't want to come out. And if that's the fear that they have, then we've got these deeper conversations and issues that we need to go back and, and address as far as, you know, what is it that they're out there to do? What's, what's the alignment in our vision? Where's the trust involved there? And, and all of, of those number of things. Um, but what I, I want, the other thing I want to go back to is you mentioned something about, um, earlier in the episode about um, like football versus basketball coaches and how football dominates this country in so many ways. And when you really start to boil this down as far as what sport controls most schools and then therefore the decision-making that takes place at the administrative level. And then most of those football coaches are your athletic directors and your athletic director is hiring the rest of the of the the coaching staffs. And so if I'm a football coach who's an AD and I have a basketball position that's open, I would love to be able to get a football guy and stick him in that basketball position. Right? And so in here and again this is not hating on football coaches necessarily, but when you think about the way in which a football mind works versus say a free-flowing basketball mind or soccer or field hockey or lacrosse or any a number of those things it's just a different way of going about it because the sports are inherently different 
And so if you have more of a football minded person running an invasion type of practice and you extrapolate that out over an entire country, then it's pretty easy to see why basketball in large part is run basketball practices, basketball scouts, basketball, you know, timeouts, halftime speeches, post games, prep are run more like football practices, football locker room speeches, football post games, those types of things. And I think that that's a really interesting conversation to have and wondering why, okay, well, we, we over here sort of emulate what they're doing in Europe. We think that everything that a European coach does is better, right? The way that they teach, the way that they play, it's so much more free flowing. But when you probably, if you were, if we were just to continue down this little hypothesis road for a second, well, where are their coaches being, you know, influenced by what dominates uh, a European country as far as popularity goes? The other football. It's other football. It's soccer or it's rugby, which Mm -hmm. is another invasion sport. And so if, if all the coaches at a club or a school are coaching soccer, rugby, and basketball, they all have a lot more in common in terms of what they need their players to do and think, as opposed to, you know, third and two versus a conceptual offense on, on the basketball court. And it's not to say that a coach can't do both. That's not what we're saying. I mean, one of our, one of our best friends and one of the best coaches we know is a football and a basketball guy. And, it, and it's been interesting to see his development from football to basketball and seeing things a little bit differently. And then in turn, taking what he's learned from basketball and then applying that to football mm-hmm. and creating more of a free flowing opportunity for his kids to be able to process and think on the football field. Um, and again, it's this is just us just sort of talking out loud here, but I'd be interested to to know what other coaches think in terms of this because as a guy who had to coach at a football and a baseball school as the basketball coach there were a ton of frustrations that came along with that not just in terms of resources and what we had to deal with to compete from uh from the basketball standpoint and also sharing athletes but then you also have to retrain the way an athlete thinks and that's why typically at a, at a lower level at a youth level a middle school or a high school level if you've got really great athletes that can play football, then chances are you probably can play some basketball too, because they're just better athletes. And it's not necessarily about playing better basketball. It's that because you've got better, better players. And so if you don't have the better players, like you said, I think this is a really great question for people to sit down and ask, how do I close the gap between my lesser players and your better players? Is it to try to figure out every single thing that your better player might do, or is it for me to raise the level of my players? And again, when, when we were dealing with a precious, precious resource like time and not just in a two hour practice, but again, if you're having to share athletes from football to baseball, to track to, you know, any number of other sports, what is the better return on our investment? And I think that's the question that we have to continually ask ourselves, what are we getting out of this? And what are not just we, as me, as the coach or staff or program, what is that particular player getting out of this? It's actually, it's funny you say that because this, that is one of the exact questions I have written down on my little prep sheet right here is what are we getting in our time for each player? And we're not going to rehash sort of the differentiation conversation. We talked about that ad nauseum in the last episode, but really thinking about like, is each player going to get better? So think about like, all right, for 10 minutes, we're going to do the other teams, you know, continuity offense or whatever and we have 15 players each kid might get three or four reps guarding that tops 
that's if everybody gets reps. So even thinking about like at your context in division one, division one women's basketball gets to have practice players, right? So you got a, a male practice squad out there running the other team's stuff, which is fine. But then maybe our top eight are going to get reps against those guys, right? I listened to a podcast the other day, Trisha Cullup, who's the head coach at Toledo. She had some really interesting things to say about how they introduce scout with their scout guys. And like, they have half the team doing a shooting drill on the other end. Like she doesn't like to waste time. I think that's a great idea to try to alleviate some of this and give some more reps to all of the kids in the context of things we want to get better at. Um, you know, I think if we flip the conversation then to, and we're still talking about practice, but let's think about then if we're losing or if we're not performing the way we want to, what can we do in practice to sort of change some of that? And that's sort of where we left off in the last episode of sort of introducing that concept of like, you know, players earn their playing time in practice. We know this. That's kind of like the common coach speak of like, you earn your time in practice. We're going to talk a little bit later about like how they do that. Um, but let's sort of attack losing here, Kyle, and think about like what practice can look like when we're losing, what it should look like, and why we really are losing. And so I, in a basketball context, I'm going to make an assertion here, and I want you to tell me if I'm wrong. All right. I'm going to guess the majority of the time if you are losing, it is not that the other team's stuff is beating you. It may not even be that the other team's players are beating you. I think it is the fact that you are probably not able to consistently make shots when you have them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we had a conversation with one of our uh, ECOGs the other day in a text chat. Mm -hmm. We're doing everything we need to do. We're getting the shots we want to get. We're Not just the, the shots steps. they want to get. I believe that that uh, one of the that ECOG their team was averaging twenty plus more shots than the other team. Yeah, getting shots and stopping the other team from getting shots and getting shots they want and spots they want, but just not converting. Like it comes down to a conversion issue, mm -hmm. which means it's a development issue, or it could be a confidence issue, and there could be any number of things that we could dissect there. But this is sort of what we're talking about in reevaluating where you are and what you need to attack. How do we assess where we are and attack what's most important? Well, again, it's not a set issue. It's not a scout issue. It's not an energy or an effort issue. It's not a want to or a know-how or all the, all the things that sort of circumvent these buzzwordy, coach-speaky type things that we say we've got to get to. Let's say you've got all of that taken care of, mm -hmm. right? Like this program does. the deck in all of those areas. Yeah, it's, it's a very well-coached, well-run program with great kids and they're doing it. But at the end of the day, they would win more games if they'd simply make more shots, mm -hmm. right? So it's not this defense wins championships or you're going to play if you, you know, you're only going to play if you defend and yada, yada. No, we need the ball to go into the basket. And that is, at the end of the day, what basketball is all about. You have got to be able to put the ball in the basket more so than others. And you can say that, well, defensively, we can stop them from doing that, but you don't control what those other teams do as much as we want to say that we do and as much as we think we're playing chess when everybody else is playing checkers, we don't get to control what those players want to do and how that coach wants to run things. All we can do is control if we're going to, you know, if we're going to, again, coach speak type things. If we're going to say control what we can control, 
then we as coaches need to control what we can control. And that's our own players' development, not what another team may or may not do. Again, we don't know. And that's one of the funniest things that I find about um, scout, prep, et cetera. I adjust my team based on what I think a seams team is going to do. A seam adjusts his team based on what he thinks Kyle's team is going to do. And at the end of the day, neither of us do what we're supposed to do because we're so busy trying to zig when the other person zags. And so that's why at halftime, we have to go back in there and say, okay, guys, forget everything that we talked about. Let's start drawing something up on the board and let's just, quote, get back to us. And we've essentially wasted a half of competition trying to outfox the other person when we really outfoxed ourselves. And But that half of competition was predicated on the two or three days, the six hours we spent preparing for that half of competition. When in reality, like, okay, if we want to give up less, you know, if we want to get more percentage of our offensive rebounds, the easiest way to do that is to have less offensive rebounds, right? If you have less offensive rebounds, let's say we have five opportunities to get an offensive rebound because we're making shots and we get three of them. Now we're at 60% offensive rebounding percentage. So realistically, if we just work backwards from what the game requires, and again, this is a very basketball-centric conversation because that's our context, but you can put this in whatever context you want. I mean, we talked to one of our soccer clients the other day, and I asked this very simple question. I said, because I was watching the World Cup, and like, you know, I think it was, who was I? I don't remember who I was watching. Maybe it was Argentina, and they were just ripping shots left and right. And so I texted one of our, our EC fam, and I was like, hey, do soccer players ever get mad when people are taking more shots than they think they should be? Like, do soccer teammates do the same thing basketball teammates do where they're like, yo, you're two for 11, stop shooting. And she was like, honestly, no, because shots are so hard to come by. You want to put as many on the goal as possible. I said, so if we work backwards from that concept, how do we develop our game model to get as many shots as possible? And so then the same thing applies in basketball. Like, you are probably losing games because your kids can't make shots or consistently can't make shots that they should be expected to make. Now, the expectation comes from two places. Number one, it's their current skill set and what they've demonstrated that they should be able to do. And number two, and this is where the onus is on the player, is them continually like working on that skill set to where they are reliable and consistent in making the shots we're asking them to make. And so if we play a really sound brand of basketball and we practice the things that happen the most and our players understand, you know, our shot selection scale and how we want to seek those shots, which is why our essential elements are so important. Now, it doesn't matter what the other team does. We can still navigate our way to makeable high percentage shots. And it comes down to our skill level being the thing that loses us games. And so instead of then in practice, continually asserting that we need to prepare for the game, what do we need to prepare for? We need to prepare to make more shots than the other team and to get stops on the other end. Either way, it is players against players. It's not stuff against stuff. And so I invite coaches to do a couple of things. I mean, this is, Right now, I mean, most of us probably have some sort of a break. If you have practice footage, like really think about this, like in our context. So this is question number one. In our context, do we have time for extra work 
including shots. So depending on what level you coach, depending on whether kids need rides or they have class or they have this or that, do we have time to spend 15 minutes before or after practice getting extra shots in a game context? And so what I mean, kind of rudimentary game context, and I think this is, maybe I'm wrong about that, but I think this is a Brian McCormick um, definition, but with a shooting and a passing option. So they got to have somebody they can pass to, right? Because I don't think anything happens in isolation in basketball, right? Do we have time to do that? I would say most of us probably do, right? Even in practice, like we can find the time to get those kinds of shots. So the second thing you can, you can try to do and see if this is why you are losing games, right? Track the total number of game shots your players get in practice. So if we're spending the entire practice playing five on five, or we're spending the entire practice playing, you know, doing on-air drills or any combination of small-sided games, whatever it is, how many actual game shots are kids getting in your practice? And if they're not able to stay after, or if they're not able to come in and put in extra work and get on the gun or, you know, whatever, get shots up, we are relying on when they had the most time in their schedule, which is probably in the summer, to carry forward for the rest of the year until we get to the next summer and then they can improve some more. And I've had coaches in the past, like I've had coaches tell me like, oh, players don't improve during the season. They are who they are when they get here. And we just have to wait till the summer for them to improve. Okay, so then we're relying on hope in order to try to win games. And so if we've targeted the reason as to why losing tends to happen in a game like basketball, where it's we're not getting enough shots up on the rim, we're not making enough shots our practice needs to mirror the reason that we would lose. And so we need to get kids more game shots. All right. The last thing is thinking about this worksheet idea. If we're doing the same old shooting every day with no real growth and all of them are full team reps, that may not be moving the needle for us. So we have to be able to then go back to that differentiation conversation and say, hey, how do I get Kyle more shots from the corner and how do I get Kyle more shots from the corner where his feet are standing or are still and we're running somebody at him like a help defender because that's the context in which he's going to shoot the majority of the shots he gets based on how we play so instead of the preparation for the opponent based on what they do we want to prepare our players to thrive in chaos no matter what they do, because they've had enough of those reps and they understand exactly the shots they're trying to get. We got to put that ball in the basket. I mean, listen, the game is called basketball for a reason. You put the ball in the basket. It's not called defense ball. It's not minimizing the importance of defense, but literally like you can't win games without scoring. Like that's the John Madden thing, right? The team that scores more points is going to win. That's the commentary you know, the, the ridiculous thing you hear in a sports parody movie. But literally, that's the point, right? So how do we then maximize that part and stack the deck in that area instead of leaving that part up to chance and saying, well, we better just be able to stop their Euro ball screen continuity, 
right? And maybe this is a little bit soapboxy, but like I really believe that the majority of teams at the high school and the college level lose because they just simply can't make shots reliably, right? And then you see uh, Steve Clifford come out the other day talking about how like unless the Hornets are willing to defend, they're never going to win, right? You can't just outscore teams in the NBA. That's true because everyone in the NBA is elite. There is no drop-off in the NBA. Like, I, I, anytime anybody says, like, oh, this insert pro athlete here sucks, I'm like, no. Literally every pro athlete is 0.1% of the world's population that is incredible at what they do. We're never going to say they suck. But that's why the context is different. Everybody at that level can make shots reliably. Everyone at our levels can't. And that's legitimately why you can you just end up shooting yourselves out of games because you don't have shot makers. But that happens in practice. And so if we're not getting that ROI from our practice, then we can't reliably believe that we're going to have a chance to win when all things are equal and talent is the same, it's going to come down to, as you said, players making plays, players putting the ball in the basket. And we want things to be about us, right? So that's why we do all this scout. But it's like, it can still, you can still have that feel good, like it's about, because you developed the player. But if you're, again, you're telling on yourself if you're saying players aren't going to develop in season. If they're only developing outside of the season when they're not with you, then A, what are you doing? You know, what's the point of us being there? If they have to get up, if if the only way they're going to improve as a shooter is to come in and get shots up before or after practice, again, when you're not in the gym, then we're really telling on ourselves in terms of like what our importance is and what our impact is in terms of player development. Because we're essentially saying that it's not going to happen when we're in the gym, because the only time that we are in the gym together is I've got to teach you about somebody else instead of focusing on what it is that we're going to do. And, And the lesson... I learned this, first learned this, learned it a few times, but when I was a head coach, we played teams 75% of the time were just better than we were. Athletically, talent-wise, they were just better. And so we had a really difficult time trying to bridge that gap. But I would get my most frustrated when we would finally get, you know, one out of four teams that we matched up with athletically that we felt like, okay, we've got a really good shot at winning this game. So we're going to, you know, run this set and this is how we're going to pick on the help. And this is where we're going to get our shots. The most frustrated I would be was not when an athletic team wouldn't let me enter the ball to the wing, which would shut us down because I didn't have a a way to handle that at the time because my, my players were just trying to run my set. Right. It was when we played teams that were so bad that their defenses were so bad that they were never in the quote-unquote right spot. So I'm telling my players, hey, we're going to come off of this double stagger and you're going to curl and then you're going to get a catch here and then you're going to drive and you're going to dump it because this is where the help's going to be. But the other team's defense was so bad, their help was never where they were supposed to be and they would end up defending us anyway because we weren't able to make the read and make the play. So the problem was we were either playing teams that were too good for us to deal with or we were playing teams that were too bad (laughs) For us to deal with because we couldn't think and that was sort of this the probably one of the first moments I had when I started to come to the realization that like hey I'm not helping us play against better teams but I'm also not helping us beat bad teams 
And I like I was the problem at the center of both of those ends of the spectrum. And that it was more about me needing to get out of the way and teach players how to handle crises in the moment. And that that right there was a a dump truck hit to the face um, when you start to realize that, no, it's not just my players are, are dumb or they're unskilled that it's no, I'm putting them in these situations. And so I've got to start taking responsibility for that, which comes back to the very beginning of this episode in, in cognitive load. What am I giving them? How are they handling it? How are they processing that speed? And where is that sort of Goldilocks that, that just right. You know, when we talk about um, wanting to be relaxed yet highly focused, that, that flow, that it's it's if we give them something that's too complex that's going to raise their anxiety if we give them something that is too simplistic it's going to create boredom and so we're constantly walking this balance beam of what is just right how do we increase and maximize their engagement and their motivation by making sure we're giving them something that is going to to keep that interest peaked the entire time that's also going to maximize their effort, which wants them to come back. And now they're wanting to develop. Because again, I think that's another part of this is if our players don't want to come to practice and they're not, you know, yoked up about actually even being there to put forth the effort to get better, then that's another issue that we, you know, sort of touched on in the, in the previous episode. But if we are able to find sort of that balance and we're able to talk more about us and we're able to create more possessions like you're talking about because we can increase uh, offensive rebounding percentages and we can get up more shots. Ultimately, what we're doing there is we're, we're increasing and widening the margin for error for our teams. You know, a, a, a team like the Kansas City Chiefs with Patrick Mahomes, they can turn the ball over three times in the first half and be down 17 to nothing and not play well. They're fine because they can strike in an instant. Like they have such a wide margin for, I mean, how many times do you see them down? And it's like, oh, they're good. You know, they're down 10 with six minutes left. This game's not over. Well, not it's like because Warriors. it's not. Right. The same right. thing. Same thing with the same Warriors. Thing. Like that patented third quarter run, like they'll spot you 15, 17 points. And all of a sudden they're going to be up 12 at the end of the third quarter. In the blink of an eye, because they've increased that, that margin for error. But if you're, if you're working on the opposite end of that spectrum, where we're trying to grind out defense and turnover and blah, blah, blah. One turnover, one fumble, one three and out, you know, five shots missed in a row, one bad run, like, and you're down 12. And I, I this is one of the biggest, like, cliche, dumbest things I hate to hear during a game. But it's like, you know, the way this game's being played, that six-point lead feels like a 12-point lead. And it's mm-hmm. like, well, they're still down six. <laughs> so it's not 12. But, you know, one point is worth one point all the time. So they're still only down six, but it does feel that way. Like it's so hard for you to manufacture points or you only, you know, Hey, if we're down 10 with three minutes left, we're just simply not going to get the ball back enough mm-hmm. because we're not built and wired that way. Mm-hmm. But on the reverse of that, you might be up 10 with three minutes left, but you still don't feel good about it because the other team, they've got plenty of time. Yeah. Because they've got that offensive firepower and they have that widened margin for error. And, and I think that's what another part of our jobs as coaches for our teams to ultimately be successful is you want to increase the margin for error. Yes, we don't want to make mistakes. It's not saying make more mistakes just for the sake of making mistakes, but we want to make sure that one mistake is not compounded into two or three and it doesn't 
quote unquote, feel like one mistake equals five. Yeah. We want to be able to bounce back from that, move on and know that, hey, we're going to screw some things up, but we're going to get so many chances in a game. And that's the way that we're going to play because that's the way that we've practiced. And that's what we're used to that if we do hit a lull, which again is going to happen, like it's impossible not to, that ultimately that's not going to be the end of us. And we're not necessarily going to win a game in the first quarter, but we're not going to cause ourselves to lose a game in the first quarter. So, you know, it's funny as you're talking, like everything that you just said is a life skill, right? Handling crises in the moment, knowing how to bounce back from disappointment or from lulls or from things that may not be going the right way and continually widening our margin of error as people to ensure that we can still stack the deck and still try to be successful. I mean, if you think about it, like those are the things we want as we think about our visions, right? To create better people. Like all of those things are life skills. And so, you know, it, it leads me to this idea of like, why are coaches in practice in the first place? Right? Why do we coach in the first place? I, we've, we've sort of attacked that issue at, you know, a lot, but I think it's all related, right? Like all of this stuff is related. And that's where I think we have to sort of redefine what coaching is in the first place to understand like, yes, we all want to coach because we love the game. We love kids. We want to make sure they have a great experience, this, that, and the other. But like the majority of the time that you spend with the players is where it's in practice. Right, they're spending eleven percent of their waking hours with you, and if they don't want to be there, like think about the last time you gave your players a day off. How many of them cheered and celebrated? You know, I think it's a pretty natural reaction because, like, it's just something like they don't have to go in that day, which is like, listen, we all love that. So I'm not like that's not you know telling you are a terrible coach if your kids celebrate when they you know when you give them a random day off, right? But I think there is this sort of like sigh of relief that players have when they don't enjoy going to practice where it's like, oh, my God, thank God, right, that I don't have to go. And so I think about like the coach's role in practice and like well, this is one thing that you and I talked about via text the other day, like when we were planning this episode to record. And it was like. As a coach, what are you practicing in practice? Is the practice just for the players or is it for you too? Because we do all this prep, probably spend way more than 11% of our waking hours on stuff that really is like inconsequential. And we go into practice as the ones who put together the plan, who know what should be happening. We're the ones who set the vision forward for everybody. So at that point, are we just on autopilot and the players are just going into practice their stuff? Or is that when we have to turn ourselves down to a seven, be really cal calm, cool, and collected so we can model that behavior, just like all that other stuff you just talked about, handling crises in the moment, bouncing back, resilience, all of that stuff. Isn't that our time to model those things for the players? And yet... Well, Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, I, I think we we I think we just found another instance where we're telling on ourselves that if our players aren't going to get better during the season because we have to continue, then doesn't that mean that we don't get better during the season too? A hundred percent. 
100%. So we spend the majority of that six months just chilling and, and honestly, like downgrading ourselves, right? Sort of withering away. And then you end up like me and you at the end of the season with, you know, we can put a, we can put a timer on it. Like March 1st, sinus infection, you know, like it's just going to happen. It happens every year. Um, because we just like, we waste away and we're not getting better. And so, you know, we can also channel in our inner Jay Fry and talk about like the healthy coach and, you know, taking care of yourself and stuff like that. But, it, you know, in practice, like as coaches, what are we, like, what are we practicing? What is practice for, for us? You know, we can go back to our idea of like hypotheses and hacking standards. I think that's a big piece of what practice is for us, right? I think it's putting our players, and this is another piece of that coach speak, but like putting them in positions to be successful. It doesn't mean moving them around like chess pieces. It means literally with our practice plan, what is going to be our highest return on investment in the things that we need to be able to do? Chief among them, seeking and selecting shots that are going to win us games. And you notice I didn't say like anything about pace there. Right. Because there are teams that can slow it down and be really methodical and really seek out the shots that they want and be like exacting about it. And those teams can win just like the teams that put up 100 shots in a game because they're playing at a breakneck pace. So this is not a pace conversation at all. You can win games going at multiple paces. Right. It doesn't matter. Speed like slow is still a speed. Right. However. That's part of putting your team in a position to be successful. If you have the skill level to be able to play that way, great, go do it. But that means you're developing that skill in practice, does it not? So similarly, so similarly, if we're going to play at you know a faster pace, whatever it is, like as a coach, you have to have a reason for why you're doing that, not just because it's in vogue. And then you have to, as the coach in practice, Practice your emotional regulation and putting your players in a position to where they can regulate their emotions and they're not at an 11 all the time and be able to knock down those shots you need them to knock down, get stops when they need to get them, be able to connect with each other, not just talk, not just say communicate, communicate. No, literally they need to connect with each other and have trust that things are going to happen the way they should. So. I'm asking this question again, and I want coaches like pause this and like actually think about it for a second. When you are on the floor for practice, say you have two hours, even if you have an hour and a half. For that period of time, what are you practicing? Because I will guarantee that the majority of coaches, I fall prey to this too. Like I'm, again, we will always say, in every episode, we are not experts. We are not perfect. These are simply the questions we want answers to because it's things that have become epiphanies for us, right? And we want to share this with you. If we're not able to assess ourselves in practice and we're constantly looking outward and saying like, well, they didn't do this. The kids didn't do that. Kyle didn't do this. Asim didn't do that. Or, you know, Megan did that really well. Becca did that incredibly well. Doesn't mean she's going to play tomorrow, but she did great today. Well, how do we know that we did great today? 
we are just as much a part of this as anybody else. I would argue the coach is probably the most important part of practice. And that may be a controversial opinion for all these folks out here who are like, player led this, players need to do, yeah, they do. But like, then you need like, what, what's your, what's the point of you being there? Right. Just like we would tell a player you're contributing or you're contaminating. There's some coach speak for you too. Coaches do the same thing. So how are you like, what are you practicing? What are you contributing? And how are you assessing yourself in the moment? And we talked about last time, like coaches are awful. We as a profession are awful at assessing things in the moment, which is why we should be filming everything that we do so that we can go back and watch it again and learn from it. But then we go into practice the next day. What did we learn from the, from the previous practice? What did we learn from the previous three practices that we can take into the next one, right? So then you, you get to this question of like, is it the same thing year after year for you or day after day for you? And it's like, oh, here we go again, got practice. Or is it, yes, we have practice. Like I'm excited to try, you know, this, this, and this. I'm really pumped to put Kyle in this position. And like, you know, like what, what's the mindset that you have going into practice? along with all of the other responsibilities that you have as a coach. And so I'm going to throw it to you. Like, I don't know what you think about it. I have a, a few other things on that, but like, what do you think about some, some of those initial questions for coaches? I, I think the the fun part, what should be fun, like to come into to practice like that, you got, you sort of touched on this a minute ago. And I think we're well on our way to a part three here. Um, Cause we're going to have to wrap this up here in a second. So I think we can just go ahead and bank some of this for a, a uh, practice part three, because you, you mentioned a couple things. You mentioned assessment, which we've been kind of teasing this drills assessment for two episodes now. And I do want to take some time to to dive into that. And maybe that's for the next time. Um, but you touched on one thing about like, A, why are we coaching? Sort of a deeper philosophical question and getting back to that. And there's one thing that I hear um, our baseball coach at Louisiana Tech talk about a lot, Lane Burroughs, who's a really, really great coach. And I don't get to spend a lot of time with him. But when he talks, he he doesn't whether we're talking about LSU coming to town or whoever, it's never really about the opponent. It's about getting his guys to play up to what he believes baseball should be about. There is sort of this idealized, almost perfection of what baseball should be. And it's about getting his guys to play as close to that standard as possible. The opponent, you know, LSU, Arkansas, UTEP, UTSA, whoever, just happens to be the person that's going to help us achieve that on that given night. And I think when you look at the game that way, it's, it is it is a very like romanticized type of view, but it's a beautiful view of what games actually are about, what sport, what competition is actually about. If you're saying this is the level, this is the brand of basketball that we want to play, and we focus on our particular brand. And the only reason that we're going to play a game today is to try to come as close to that perfection as possible. It, again, it doesn't matter who's in the gym. Vanderbilt, South Alabama, UTEP coming to town on Sunday, it does not matter. We are going to try to reach our level of perfection. And so you, you mentioned that, and that's where that's where I get excited or that's what I miss the most about being in practice is getting excited about walking into practice and saying, okay, Asim, I'm going to challenge you today and I'm going to put you in a situation to try to get you to reach that peak. 
And so you're going to screw up. You're going to make mistakes. But the whole goal about today's practice is I know I've been doing this with you. Today, I'm going to challenge you with that. And we're going to see how close you get. And so going back, referencing last episode, you were a one out of five on our rubric or our assessment for this. Today is about trying to get you to two out of five. Mm-hmm. We're going to try to increase that level. And so I'm excited as the coach in the room who's controlling all of this. You know, if we love control. This is where I feel like we get to exercise it. It's the positions that we put our players in and not just positions we put them in, but it's the opportunities that we are giving them to perform in practice. And if they don't perform up to that particular level, again, it's not the it's not that they are fixed at that. It doesn't mean they suck at it. And it doesn't mean they won't get there. It's they're not there yet. Mm-hmm. And so the next practice is to come in and sort of figure out how we're going to continually push them. And maybe we were one, maybe we were too far on one ends of those that Goldilocks spectrum. Maybe it was too complex and and peaking their anxiety. Maybe it was too too low and they were bored. Well, Asim just wasn't engaged today. I don't know where they were. I don't know where their heads at. They've been like that all week. Well, maybe you're bored. You know, maybe you're the kid who didn't need to study in math and math is you love math, but math is boring. But you get this rep that you hate math and you're a bad student. Mm-hmm. No, you're just not being challenged enough appropriately. So, again, whose responsibility is that? Yeah, you could take some responsibility and try to come in and find ways to engage yourself or whatever. But again, if we're going to say that we're the adults in the room and that the coach needs to have their place, like you're saying to me, this is where you get to exercise some of that control. And that's and what this is where. Practicing. Right. You are practicing Bingo. putting your players in those positions and continually thinking about how do I move the needle every single day for our team? And so then it should never be that grind in January. Right. So you can even extrapolate out from that. And sorry to interrupt you, but like that got me really, really pumped to hear you say that. Right. Like if we're like, oh, we're in the dog days, it's the same thing every day. Why? That's on you right? As the coach, like that is squarely on you as the environment creator that you are not using practice to get better yourself. Right. You're if, you're, there if, to be there. if you're going to the, to the filing cabinet, drawer number three, open it up, go to folder 2021, 22, week 16, and you're pulling out that practice plan from last year to see what we're supposed to be covering right now, as opposed to assessing where this particular team is and what we need to be doing to challenge them then that's what these worksheet practices are all about that we're talking about. If we're just copying and pasting and changing practice number 31 to practice number 32, changing the time, mixing up a couple of the teams and changing like the emphasis or the, you know, the, the announcement that we have to make after the game, as far as like what time we need to be at pregame tomorrow, then that's us getting caught in this worksheet trap mm-hmm. year after year after year. And it was, it's no different than, than you and I probably were as classroom teachers when it was like every Friday, you got to put your lesson plans in for the next week. And it's like, okay, great. Copy and paste this week and throw them in the next one where really the planning comes in. Okay. Who am I going to challenge in class today? What questions am I going to ask? I've noticed that so-and-so is having a hard time figuring this out. I'm going to figure out a way to give them some small successes in class to build some of their, their confidence. And then I'm going to hit them with something else. And that's where they're going to get better. And then a little bit of that positive peer pressure is going to take over. And whereas a seam who never talks in class all of a sudden does, that's going to get these other two over here who never talk in class to maybe do a little bit more. And so now, yes, I'm getting to be sort of that Wizard of Oz behind the curtain and I'm, I'm manipulating and pulling the marionette strings. That's where I feel like we as the leaders 
have the opportunity to be this, you know, genius chess player when everybody else is playing checkers. It's not just us figuring out what somebody else is doing. It's us figuring out what our teams, what our kids, what our players, what our students, what our players need in that moment and how we're going to help get them there. And that's the part where you should be getting jacked up about practice. We should be super excited because I'm, I know what I'm hoping to see out of a particular kid, and I'm going to do what I can to make sure they get there. Thank you.